millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. Matt here. This week's episode of the podcast was recorded all the way back in the early days of fighting on film. So features like the Alley Tally and its famous jingle are yet to come. So enjoy this one from the Fighting on Film Vault as we take a look back at two short films from the acclaimed British director, Peter Watkins. Welcome to Fighting on Film, the podcast about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to cover it. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. I'm Robbie of RA Military History. Welcome back to Fighting on Film. Me and Matt are back again uh, with a new episode. And this week we are going to be talking about two of Peter Watkins' short films. And some of you may know him from his very famous film, The War Game. Which is about nuclear war. It is, yeah. But today we're going to be discussing two films which are slightly different uh, subject matter, slightly earlier, but they're both still conflict films. Yep, they're war films. Both done in a sort of uh, earlier version of his style. So we can we can see where his style evolved from into what he's probably best known for in the war game. Yep, which I cannot watch. So this is what we're doing uh, Robbie, his short films. Just, just for some background for the listener, uh, Robbie is adamant that he will never watch the war game because nuclear war terrifies him. Yes, And I think does. nuclear war terrifies everyone, Robbie. <laughs> no, but, um... I'm, not, I'm not exclusive to that to that little <laughs> sort of fear there. I've watched but... War Game many times, and it is terrifying and horrible, but it's a great film. I, I, without doubt. Not that you'll ever know. No. I mean, if we get, <laughs> if we get to a thousand Twitter followers and, like, concurrent listeners, I will, I'll put myself Fighting through Fighting on it. film. We'll put, I'll put myself through it for you Good guys. Good idea. Good Maybe. idea. That's your little Definitely line. everyone 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 listening, follow us now. Yeah. So we have to subject Robbie to the war game. You need some sort of clockwork orange contraption, I think, to make oh. <laughs> Good God, yeah. 
<laughs> that would be yeah you would definitely be scarred i think i would so let's get back to our point we are today discussing two films 1959's the diary of an unknown soldier and 1960-61's uh, The Forgotten Faces, which is a film about the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And uh, Unknown Soldier is a film about World War One. It is, yeah. And they're, they're only shorts. They're 20 minutes long each, max. I 17, think. actually. 17, 17 minutes. minutes. Yeah, they're both identically 17 minutes mm. long. Um, so they're good, punchy little watches. Yeah, they really, yeah. You know, they, they, they hit hard or don't, as we'll find out. But yeah, they're... They're the only ones have filmed by a, a group of filmmakers called the Playcraft Film Unit. And they're like an amateur dramatics group that Peter Watkins sort of stumbles across after he does his national service. Yeah, so he was doing his national service in Canterbury and uh, came across this play group or, or a theatre group, basically. And I think from there he sort of like co-opted them and and got them yeah. to help him with the films he wanted to make, which is which is really interesting. Yeah, he um he shoots one of his first films in 1956, 1957, called The Web. And uh, that's a it's about a German soldier who gets caught by a, a group of a group of Mackie resistance fighters. Um yes. unfortunately it's been lost. Um and then he does one called Fields of Red, which is an American Civil War sort of short film. And it's all very amateur. You know, they're making cannons and things like that. There's a there's a theme emerging though, isn't there? There's the a, there's an interest in conflict. There's an interest, mm. like a sort of yeah. fascination uh, with war. Yeah, it is. And I yeah. think one of the themes with Watkins' early work is definitely like man's inhumanity to man. Yeah, you can see it. You mm. know, he's, he's very sort of why do we do this? How do people f- like feel in these situations? It, you know, it's not necessarily about the gung ho aspects of war. You know, they're very every distinct themes yeah distinct themes and a, and a really distinct sort of uh, cinematic style that Watkins has as well isn't it it's sort of like uh it, 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 there's a narrative that's driven by punchy shots close-ups handheld camera um footage that gives everything almost newsreel sort of vibe or yeah. you know an on the scene sort of feel I think it's helped as well because he films these movies on cine cameras like eight millimeter yeah. 16 millimeter yeah. cameras so and at the time that's what the newsreels were using so it sort of it does mirror the the kind of british pathé newsreels um of the time it really helps his film style i guess we should begin with uh diary of an unknown soldier a film that's set during the first world war it looks to be sometime mid-war i would yeah. say um and it basically the narrator is ostensibly someone writing a diary of what they describe as their last day on earth it's sort of the idea is that the soldier that we follow and the narration that we hear is the diary entry of of this soldier's last day and that he's probably killed in action at the front line the fear the tension um the foreboding of of going into the trenches basically it's um like an internal monologue isn't it of how yes exactly how this unnamed soldier's feeling you know you see his sort of pans up and you've got his face like stark imagery of his face like that very mm-hmm. close in- intimidating shots that Watkins uses a lot of it is and I, I mean I've seen War Game and you can definitely see where the, the 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 genesis of his style comes from so obviously with some of his earlier films being lost these are some of the earliest that we can actually you know watch so there's a lot of a lot of extreme close-ups um that convey sort of like the emotion of of the characters and 
there's um, some interesting like juxtaposition early on where there's a group of men singing as they're digging a trench. Uh, we don't see the trench, we don't see the men, we just hear the, the digging and and, uh, and and the singing. And it's entirely just a, a really close uh, shot of the, the, the main character's face. Mm. And then there's like a and, dead body, isn't there? And a, yeah, exactly. And that's the end the, the wobbling in the, yeah, in the ground. And that's the stark sort of like juxtaposition mm. um, of these men singing. And the song has like the chorus is like laughter. So there's a, there's a, it's a point where um, it's sort of, there's, there's laughter and then the, the camera goes from a close-up of um, the, the main character's face and looks directly at this this fallen soldier, this dead soldier. And it's very graphic. He's quite clearly, you know, deceased. And yeah. these men that we don't see in the background, they're, they're digging a trench, um, are singing along happily. Yeah. And then the narrator is sort of describing how the warmth of the early morning light you know, is is taking him, him away from the realities of war. But at the same time, the viewer, we're, we're literally looking at the reality of war, mm. which is, you know, this this fallen soldier, this dead soldier. Like he's very, he's, I think he's quite good at that. He, he's good at sort of juxtaposing his his words and stuff and the narration. Yeah. But then I think it, it quickly sort of, it tails a little bit, I think, for me. Mm. There's a little, I think there's a, when it starts to show the other members of his section, I think that's when the sort of film starts to go downhill a little bit. There's a lot of character set up, but it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. He goes, yeah. oh, that man, Tom, he's been at war longer than all of us. Yeah, since 1915, etc. And it's like, well, when's this set then? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's set maybe 1916. They have, they have, they have go blimey caps. Um, yeah, they do. Yeah. And, and they do put on steel helmets. Yeah, they, yeah. So it would be probably 1916 onwards, I, right. I would say. From the uh, the kit as well. The kit's not bad. From yeah, some accuracy, accuracy some, point of view. Some half decent putties there, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Unlike Trench <laughs> Eleven. Yeah. And then it sort of goes into this big long sort of monologue about, oh, I I feel ill and my chest hurts and I why do I hurt and I can't tell anyone. It's, it gets a bit whiny for me. It does and it does and and Watkins himself is the actual narrator. He is, yeah. It's worth mentioning, but he isn't the actor in, in the film. That's played mm. by someone called Brian Robertson, who's an amateur actor. Yeah. Um, who's, who, does, who does a good no, they job. Do. Like, they do well. The, the actors in it are good. The, the whole cast is solid. And, you know, there's no on-set audio recorded, so it's all dubbed later. So it's just it's just filmed on a silent film camera. Then we have the narrator over the top. And some pretty effective sound effects are used, you know, like the, the marching, the mud, um, the gunfire, etc. It They're all good. pretty good. It's a well, it's a the mise en scène and everything like that is really good. Mm. And it's a yeah. shame that his words does, are just Yeah, it does feel like mm. you know, it does feel like the front line. You do get that sense of you being in the trenches, although you aren't. You're clearly just in like a, a muddy quarry or field yeah. or something like all, that. It does that trick thing that these sort of movies have where they're filming upwards so you don't see the, yes. the wherever they are. Exactly, and yeah. that's one of the, that's one of the, the the clever aspects of Watkins is sort of like cinematography, because mm. yeah. although he's a director, he's the cinematographer for for, for those films. Yeah, he's doing everything, uh, isn't he? Especially yeah, in in this first this first one we're discussing. You also get you know that um, the ability to to not show backgrounds and and to have a very tight yeah. field of view, yeah. which benefits. It does benefit the movie. It does. It you does, know. and it give, you you have that atmosphere um, of of being at the front line times it feels more like a letter than a diary entry because he sort of like he discusses mm. like one of his section that he hates he just doesn't like him and not like him because he seems to enjoy the war which is fair enough and that's the kind of thing you probably write in a, in a letter or a diary mm. but this this point where it struck me is 
seems more of a more of a letter rather than a, a diary. Yeah. So when he's sort of going on about like, oh, I feel really sorry for the lieutenant and I feel mm. sorry for him and sorry for that. I said, well, have you actually asked him? I kind of, <laughs> I kind of got a bit. I lost it. It lost me a bit because it was like, well, someone's. It's like a bad RC sheriff interpretation a little bit yeah there are some tropes of world war one in there as well aren't there so like poor infantry yeah fighting over 200 yards of ground he even says that in it he does he does that's one of the things he 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 says you know we'll we'll probably lose this tomorrow in a counter-attack yeah yeah even even in the the historiography of the period that is you know what that was the how the the war was perceived yeah definitely in britain anyway that's for sure We're, we're deep into First World War defeatism and apologists of oh they were heroes led by donkeys and all that. Yes, that, which, that's the the classic trope. Yeah, it's a shame, but it's of its time. There's nothing we can do about that. Yeah, and I mean on a on a in an individual level, I mean it it would seem like that you know you're you know you don't you don't know the the strategic overview. You don't know what the generals are thinking. So no, no, yes, yeah. that's a, a fair line of thought for someone in the trench to have, but. Um, there's some interesting reflections on like the futility of war, even though it's a little bit cliched in places like references to like plain tin soldiers, yeah, you know, and and obviously the fighting for the few yards of earth and that kind mm. of thing. But it does like a, a largely good job at, of musing on possibly what meant through the the minds of of people at the front, men mm. at the front. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting section where we see uh, a POW, a German POW. Oh yeah, and he sort of like yeah, muses yeah. on. Um, he seems harmless. The most terrible thing about the war is not that we have to kill men, but we have to hate them and have to continue yeah. hating them. Yeah. Which I that's thought a was fair, a great line. No, that is that. Yeah. That was one of the better pieces of scripting. In actually, you know, seeing a seeing a prisoner of war just happy as Larry eating some soup as he was yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Would be really jarring if you meant to kill that man. Definitely. You know, you look at there's loads of things like that that happen during accounts of war where you go, well, the prisoners came back and that's who they're fighting. Really? You know, so it, it was refreshing to sort of see that. Yeah, it's, and that's one of the more interesting points of the film. It's only 17 minutes long. He never goes to the front. He's on his way to the front. So he's basically yeah. in, a, in a staging area at the, at the rear, probably in like a, a reserve trench. And he's sort of like sat there waiting and he's pondering. It's the waiting that's getting to him, I think. Mm. And that's that's the tension that ramps up. It annoyed um, me that they were in marching order when they should have been in battle order. But that's just nitpicking. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> really nitpicky. But I mean, the me. kit's rather good. I mean, it's yeah. the, the uniforms are, are good. The rifles are are, are mostly mock-ups. Though. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So they're very good mock-ups, but yeah. they're they're kind of like there's attention to detail, and in, in you know, one a couple of them have like charger bridges, like the SMLE would actually yeah. have, but the execution is a little bit crude. Mm. So they have like the, the correct nose cap on the SMLE, you know, for mounting the bayonet in the yeah. front sight, but the sling attachment is sort of like very thick and crude yeah it's like it's, a massive it's sort of like a barrel band that loops plastic, around yeah, it's a bit and odd it, isn't it yeah and that that kind of thing is it's sort of like a cruder effort mm. but you know there's there's some labels in there there's some french troops that french we briefly tr- yeah. see they they march past and they get um, killed <laughs> yeah well the main part of the film is sort of like a, an imagined battle sequence that's it pictures himself um at the front line in a battle fighting yep and you know the the viciousness of the fighting and that's that's some great cinematography it's very kinetic there's a lot of like you feel a lot of movement mm. you know for what was probably just like half a dozen lads running across some soil for the production value it's very good and it does achieve a lot and you can see why it was lauded 
amongst yeah, yeah. like this is one of the um, UK amateur cinema. Yeah, um, at the but, time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for what he was working with, it's definitely good. Definitely. I mean, he gets a lot of plaudits for these early works. Yeah, well, he won the 10 best, which is like that's the it. UK amateur Oscar. Yeah, that's it. Oscars at the it's, time. They're very sort of, I think, at the you know, it's something now we would maybe laugh at, but at the time, it's a big thing yeah. to win. You know, they were called the amateur Oscars for a reason. Amateur Cine World was the magazine that, that ran it, and they ran it for decades. It ran from like the 40s well into the 70s so mm. it was a you know it was a big thing for a long time he was in the running for the amateur oscars the the, the 10, 10, 10 best competition mm. for both of these films but diary of an unknown soldier it's it's a formative effort i think you know it's yeah. very good but he grows further and we he see does. that in, in in the next film as well it's a well put together movie mm. from a filmmaker who is learning his trade finding what works finding what doesn't and then Going into the next movie, you really see he's really honed the skills. I would say that Forgotten Faces is is sort of a quantum leap ahead oh, for him. Masses, masses. Because yeah. the cast is much larger. It's much more ambitious. It's still really well done. I mean, with Unknown Soldier, that you know he he drew those credits and the the title screen himself. Yeah. So he was illustrating those by hand himself and putting the whole thing together. You know, doing the sound editing, doing the casting, doing the filming himself. Yeah. You know, so he was, it was a one-man mm, show, basically. Of course. And, you know, we know from being YouTubers, it, that, that's a lot of work. You know, we can appreciate it is, yeah. the effort. And it's even more work when you're working with Cinefilm and, oh, you God, know, yeah. sound tapes and such and getting everything together into yeah. one. And it doesn't have the luxury of Final Cut Pro like we do now. No, it doesn't, you know? no. It's an amazing little film, although it's flawed in mm. some of its aspects. I enjoyed it. I think the narration does does sort of... Where mm. on you the hysterics become a little too much. Yeah, his, his Watkins Watkins is his delivery, I think. Mm. A little yes. bit oh. I can I can understand the soldier being in hysterics, sort of mm. like mentally. I, I feel like he just didn't get the camaraderie of soldiers, maybe. Something like that. Well, that, that's one of the things I think is interesting about Watkins. Obviously, he did his national service, but he never he never actually served in an active conflict. Mm. So he never actually saw battle. But his representations of battle are remarkably interesting in that yeah he gets that kinetic feel of mm -hmm. you know the chaos of battle i've never been in battle either so i can't no, say I that they're, no. <laughs> they're no. actually yeah. correct so i've never been in battle but it does strike me as that it's not a lazy effort to portray battle like no it's there's not a, there's thought that's gone into it i mean he could and... have been born on his training yeah, battle exercises definitely. maybe he's drawn on that yeah um but yeah it just well i know, I know you enjoyed it matt but i, I was just a little bit Mm, I was on the fence, 50-50 about it. Yeah, I don't know whether I, would, I enjoyed it. I would say I appreciated the effort that went into it and, and yeah. the, the, the the musings on, you know, the futility of war and and, um, and some of the cinematography, you know, for yeah, yeah. The, the level he was at, you know, that I appreciated it for that. But mm. it's not it's not as it's not as good of a film as Forgotten Faces is. No, it's not. So Forgotten Faces released, some sources say 60, some say 61. Probably filmed in 60, released in 61. Yeah, I think. go for that. It's based on the Hungarian, well not, I say based on, it is the story of the Hungarian uprising, um, which is in 1956 in October into November. And it's, uh, there was a man called Matthias Rakushi, 
and he was a sort of Soviet puppet. He was Hungarian, but he'd been in uh, Moscow for years, and he was a very staunch Stalinist, put into Hungary as a puppet. They had the sort of reforms, the collectivization of land, all the good things were being sent to the mother country, Russia. The propaganda would say, we've made 30,000 pairs of shoes this week, and everyone would go, oh, fantastic. But then the reality would be, your shoes fall apart because they've made with shoddy material to impress the world saying, look at Hungary, it's making so many things, it's fantastic. But the reality is usually comes around with these, these puppet states of, of the Soviet Union post-World War II is, it's very bad to live there, it's depressing, it, nothing runs on time, you know, it's not a very nice place to live. There was an economic downturn, wasn't there? Yeah, massively. So um, Rakishit eventually um, is replaced by Imran Naj. And he appeases the people by um, proposing uh, reforms and uh, like free markets, things like that, you know, to sort of right. quell the sort of anti-Soviet mm. um, discord that's being sort of felt in the streets and in the populace. People are getting really, really anti-Soviet by this time. Naj was removed and Rekhashit was put back in power. And then um, on the 23rd of October, 1956, uh, a bunch of Hungarian students march the town squares and things and have mm. a big protest. And this is where the, this is where the movie starts and this so is where is it fair to say it was a spontaneous revolution it feel well from my research it sort of feels like it was a you know it was a tinderbox but then the mm. the students sort of they, they ignited the spark um yeah. with, with with their peaceful protests and then what led into the fighting and everything else and mm -hmm. i think it starts after the, the students have marched yeah it's it's sort of the initial part focuses on like a follow-on protest marching on the the city center isn't it well then they never actually reached the city no, center. They don't, and they didn't um so Watkins's film starts with this one road in Canterbury called Gas Street, and it was filmed at the old gas works there. And there were these yeah. disused cottages that were used by the civil defence for like rescue reconstructions and things. I think so, they were doing training, weren't they? To sort of like how to rescue people from buildings that have been damaged in yeah the event of uh, of a, of a, of yeah, a nuclear yeah. war, Which was, probably. You know, at the time that that was very much a day to day mm -hmm. occurrence. Um, so they get all the rubble in the streets and things, and it's. You know, it looks really good. It does. And we watched a short documentary on the film, yeah, didn't we, we? Did. on the actual playcraft uh, mm. film unit that were in many of these films. And one of the ladies that was involved in the film recalls that Watkins went along with a pickaxe, chipping small holes out of the gasworks wall to, to signify like bullet holes. And, and Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where um, 
uh, machine gun fire chipped yeah. away bits of plaster and, and brick. Mm, it's a really, it's a nice little detail, isn't it? And I think this movie in particular really, really uses the set really well. Very, very mm. effective. You know, the, the floor's strewn with bits of masonry and ward yeah. and, um, you know, the buildings are, are sort of like semi uh, well they're all de derelict but they're semi semi collapsed yeah. you know it does look like a war zone it does look very yeah, they effective. look like t-34 has been putting holes in them yeah you know, which is very true of the actual events so yeah the film starts with this procession and it says you know they are marching on the the government buildings but they never get there and then a big gun battle takes mm. place yes the movie we, we had to re-watch it i think a couple of times between us because we were like hang on a minute this is stock footage. This has to be stock footage. Yes. Is this newsreel? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not. And that's, and it, it isn't. And that's one of Watkins's brilliant tricks and one of his traits that he is able to create footage through his cinematography, which makes you feel immersed in the situation. So the sort of scenes where the camera sort of pans to a, to a, a center of the action, but is slightly too slow just like a news yeah, yeah. camera would be. So, you know, the, the cameraman's reacting to something going on and, the, you know, you don't always focus in time, mm. you know, and there's a couple of instances where you get that feel there as well. I don't know whether Watkins planned it that way or was, you know, intentionally recreating it or he basically just said to the cast, right, you do this, you do that mm. action. And then he just reacted and shot how, you know, yeah. how he wanted got to a, see it. a really it. great sense of scale for for a movie like this it does it doesn't feel as claustrophobic as unknown soldier does the camera angle uh, the, the actual shots i should say are as tight so you you have a, a broader sense of scale which helps when watkins comes in to do those really close up crops on the forgotten faces of the people involved yeah 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 he sort of he has this breadth of um of uh scale in the we can see what the crowd is doing, what's going on, the gun battle, etc. And then there's moments in the film that slow the film down and we get a more mm. personal sort of idea of, of the yeah, characters. Yeah, presents a selection of, of freedom fighters for, for the audience. Mm. But they're, you know, that they're maybe named or, or there's a little close-up of them again. And, and I think this is where his close-up style really, really works because it's... Yes, You can definitely. see, you know, in, in the way that the the prop department and the, the makeup department have dressed and distressed these people. They look like they've been fighting against they do. Soviet they troops do. for days. They, they look amazing. There's a great attention to detail in, in the costume. Mm. So, you know, the civilians, so they're wearing clothes you'd easily be able to get hold of. Yeah. But they've been distressed. You know, they've got armbands on. Yeah, um, they cut out the bandoliers. Soviet iconography in the middle. Very. That's a very... Yeah, um, yeah thing that they did the freedom fighters yeah, that, did. that was interesting actually to just going off on a, a bit of a tangent you know That's that you, you see um hungarian flags hanging don't we in a number of shots and they've had the center yeah. cut out and then what they've done is they've cut out the hungarian republic crest That's it. so i think as you were saying earlier the hungarian republic ended in, in like 49 mm. and it was followed by the people's republic of yeah. hungary and so I, I don't know whether like they've taken old flags and cut the crest of you know the previous possibly uh flag out or whether there was some soviet iconography in there i, I don't know mm. i haven't looked at the progression of hungarian flags when the, but when the um revolution proper started it was the first sort of thing that well before the shooting started a lot of people started to deface soviet iconography they they tore down the statue mm. of stalin they started cutting yeah. out hammer and sickles out of anything toppling red stars it was a very much we are 
cleaning yes the soviet presence from our streets yeah there is a shot of a sort of a panning shot that's it where you see some guys with a pickaxe going to town mm. on a on a on a star like a concrete star that they obviously pulled off something yeah so it's just that attention to detail that really like pulls you into the mm. film and he, you know watkins himself i feel like he must have seen these film reels of the time because a uh, british path they shoot a film reel of the, the uprising and it's released in 56 and there is a yeah. shot of a big star falling off a government building and being set about by freedom fighters mm. who start kicking it and things and there's a shot of a guy leaning from a doorway with a ppsh taking a few pot shots and in these shots mm. are used in the film and the way they're presented it you could you think you're watching pathé footage definitely it, it's a really really strong representation of events you know from the the guy putting the grenades on the the, the windowsill and the people just sitting sort of ducking out of doorways with rifles and things like that it's atmospheric is the word i'm looking for yeah and the narrator does a, an excellent job of sort of like injecting a seriousness of the situation and he, he clearly mm. conveys the narrative of what's going on so he gives dates times that's it the, the major moments that happen so like the you know the public addresses that kind of thing on the radio we never hear the voices really of of the forgotten faces the people that were watching no. because obviously it was filmed on you know cine film and and then dubbed over later there's a there's a really effective scene where there's a journalist who is uh, uh, with a, a revolutionary or I suppose counter-revolutionary sort of like newspaper and she's giving a, a very fervent rhetorical speech reading out her her article her latest article on the off the back of a truck yeah, yeah. and the narrator doesn't actually recite what she's saying Watkins uses the broader shots to show the crowd's enthusiasm and then very tight close-ups to sort of like give us yeah. an inclination of the passion that these people are feeling from hearing the, the journalist's words. That's it. Which I think is super effective. Like yeah, one of the yeah. most effective parts of the film, I thought. It really, really is. Yeah. And, the, you know, you've got the, I think the bit for me that really got me from a sort of a filmmaking view of someone watching it, I thought, wow, that's really well done, is when the, the Freedom Fighters get their hands on the, the Arbo secret police. Yes. And that they, there's famously in the, um, well, infamously, in the uh, actual uprising, a lot of peaceful protesters were, were gunned down by the, the Arbo. And then the secret police headquarters were stormed mm. and these secret police were, were hauled out into the streets and, and set about by mobs and brutally killed. No remorse shown to these people. And in the movie, there's the same sort of scene and you see them sort of creeping up the side of the, of the secret police's hideout. And then one guy comes out and he gets shot. He falls to the ground. And then two yeah. guys um, who are a secret police are found and they're put up against the wall and shot. And then one of them's lynched from a, a telephone pole. Mm -hmm. and, that, and Basically strung up by his feet, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, and that, I think, I was looking, couldn't find the photo, but I know that's based on our genuine events. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. it's really visceral. It is, it really is. And you can tell that Watkins obviously, obviously mm. did a fair amount of research, you know, to, to set the tone correctly. Um and and recreate some of these like archetypal images yeah, from yeah. from the from the uprising you know so like the, that guy being strung up by his feet you know the freedom fighters in the windows mm. and the, the actual like uh sort of layout of the street fighting mm. that went but on in the, the narrator says something like oh these men of the, the secret policemen donning uniforms to control the people i wonder if the if the freedom fighters win will they do the same to install the peace yes so you're, you're still getting super effective really powerful like 
question to pose to like the, the viewer. If these revolutionaries win, will they become as bad as the men who have repressed them or yeah. oppressed them, I should say? And that, but that's a big, very big question for a movie like that to ask, isn't it? And you, and that's Peter's work, isn't it? Really, I think all, all the way through mm. his career, he's asking the big questions. Yes. And he he's not afraid to do so. No, he definitely isn't. And the film isn't afraid to paint the revolutionaries not out as what they are. It doesn't represent them as saints. No. You know, it describes the fury of the moment and, and the fine line between murder and the justification That's it. of, you know, of what they're doing yeah. when they when they execute these men. Because there's a couple of scenes where people are summarily executed. Yeah, they put up against a wall and, and shot, aren't they? Yeah. And it, it doesn't shy away from representing the revolution in, in terms of, of, of reality, yeah. in, in realistic terms. It doesn't gloss over some of the acts that were probably perpetrated which is the same for any any conflict like that and any revolution that always going to be no coup is bloodless really when the revolution is going well you get a little reprieve where everyone's sort of being treated and they're enjoying being free the hungarian revolutionaries were free for a week yeah. a week or so yeah. with no soviet control and it's a celebrated moment in in hungarian history sort of one of the first times since the second world war the soviet union had looked weak you know, Stalin was dead. You know, it was sort of a very, very turbulent time. And the, the Soviets in real, mm. real life, the Soviets decide, no, we're going to show a show of military strength. And they they move in on the 1st, 2nd of November, 1956, and they nearly destroy Budapest. And, and that's shown in the movie. You know, there's no tanks um, or anything like that. But I was fully expecting a T-34 to come rolling down that Canterbury Street. Yeah, you have the feel. And, you know, mm. there's there's sort of like, um, it describes how the, the tanks fired indiscriminately in, into buildings and collapsed. And, That's it. You know, we have we have very claustrophobic scenes of people being dragged out of rubble. And like screaming in pain and, yeah. and all that. And you've got, you know, people wearing bits of captured Russian kit trying to get people out. They're those shots are brilliant, aren't they, really? They're really good. They are. It's very, very effective. Mm. And I think the conclusion of the film is very effective as well. And it's one mm. of the tropes or one of the stylistic cues that Watkins uses time and time again so at the end the, the narrator sort of lists off the fates of forgotten faces doesn't it yeah, yeah. and it's sort of like dead refugee executed deported mm. and it goes on for it's a long shot maybe two minutes it feels very mm. long but we get those tight yeah. close-ups of, of the faces again they're people that the narrator has imbued some sort of life into and we become attached to the character. So there's there's a character that's set up a first aid post, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and we, yeah. we get a little bit of his backstory. He's a, he's a teacher. Um, mm. He wouldn't have joined the fighting, but he saw friends of his being killed in the street. So he got involved. And, you know, we find out, you know, he's killed. Mm. You know, his girlfriend's, um, you know, become a refugee. So while the film's only short, it's 17 minutes long. Yeah, again, it's the same runtime as, as Unknown, isn't it? What he does with that, that short amount of time he tells the story attaches us to the characters and then when the fates of those characters are listed off in a very matter of fact sort of way that hits very hard i think no it, does. it really does it's a very very well-ended movie as opposed to unknown that's something that watkins does again later so in both culloden and the war game he sort of concludes those films by 
giving a rundown of what happened to the characters that we met during the film. And that, and that nowadays, that's part of the course. Yeah, but you don't get it in that sort of style either. No, you don't. In modern films. It's sort of a sort of, sort of like... It's become a trope, hasn't it, nowadays? But it wasn't back then. In no uncertain terms, he explains that these people have died. Yeah. And that's very effective because it he's giving a voice to these forgotten faces through this film. So it's he's clearly a Definitely. passion project. And it made me... It, it made me want to learn more about that uprising, and then and I did as well. I went, I went away and did my mm. own research. Yeah, it's not no, a topic I know. No, but look, from looking from it, it's a very, very important piece of their history in Hungary. They're very fervently independent. Yes. Yeah. At the time it's being made, you know, 1960-61, you've got the sort of West v East is really sort of cranking up again. Post-war period is, is becoming a more fevered, scarier place to be. We can be quite dismissive of... of Eastern post World War Two Eastern European history because we think oh Eastern Bloc and we go oh yeah all those countries they're Russia well they're not it's Czechoslovakia it's Hungary it's Romania it's all these little countries and we forget they're actual they're not Russians they're actual people living there that that care and have thoughts and feelings and everything else so I think it's for a piece of filmmaking to show that that early on it's very um, brave and and it's ambitious ambitious it's a very ambitious yeah. movie. It is. And, you know, it's uh, uh, filmed over nine days mm -hmm. with a fairly decent cast. You know, it's sizable. There's a lot of people there. And, you know, they're all very passionate. They all, you, there's no point in that film where you go, this, is, this isn't really believable. Yeah, no. You definitely do feel like you're watching a newsreel. It's good acting. And it's, you know, there's no lines conveyed, but everyone's conveying what is going on mm. very, very well. It makes and me think if they were actually, if they were told on set, look, speaking English chat about what you think you would talk about if you were actually there because yeah it, they're not just going you know you know there's not it's not like this silent movie someone's going oh what are you having for your tea you know it's someone going oh if, if we go over there we can get a better f throw a better bomb at a tank you know in a, in a better mm -hmm. way yeah it does feel like they're talking about what's happening it does it's leaps and bounds over um unknown soldier in production value i mean oh yeah the weapons alone as well they're definitely worth mentioning because the smorgasbord. there's a whole plethora. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a, a smorgasbord of weapons. And I, I went through on my last watch and, and made a, a little list of what, what we actually see. So did I. <laughs> and some quite surprising things included in there. So we've got, um, let's see if we can compare our list. Okay. So we have uh, SVT-40. Yep. Surprise me. Um, SKS. Mm -hmm. PPSH submachine guns. Uh, there's some Russian troops that are briefly seen with an MG42. Did you spot that one? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I thought they were Hungarian freedom fires there. I don't know. So there's there's two scenes Hard where you tell. see it. The beginning of the film, there's sort of there's men in uniform, and I think they're supposed to represent perhaps um, Hungarian state police because it's around the police station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that would be right. And then later on, right. we see a team that is clearly like in in civilian dress. Yeah. So they're they're clearly like supposed to be freedom fighters the, the revolutionaries mm. and then there's sort of like a plethora of mosin again 9130s and m44s the mauser in there somewhere. and then there's a yeah there seems to be a mauser in there and there's an mp40 as well yeah there is yeah yeah and uh, yeah towards the end some nice russian and stick grenades yes some definitely some stick grenade action and uh and there's like a brief shot of a of a, i think it was a tokarev tt33 as well yeah some really interesting weapons included, and all of them are really accurate to, to what would have been available. Yeah, I mean, even down to um, like the, the PPSHs having 30 round stick mags in them over the drum mags. I mean, that is it's a lovely little touch. Yeah, for... so you, you see both. You see stick mags and drum mags, and, and the PPSHs are seen like throughout, and they would have been. Mm. 
So what were the Hungarian police armed with? Probably PPSHs and yeah, and yeah. It's a lot of from from, my, from watching the stock footage and a lot of photos from the time. It's 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 ex you know World War Two Soviet surplus. You know, yeah, basically no one they haven't got AKs just yet. Um, no, but the interesting thing about the Hungarian uprising, the revolution is that it's the first time the West ever sees uh, an AK-47. Oh, wow. So Life magazine, a photographer from Life magazine, captured a couple of really iconic photographs of a, a young Hungarian uh, revolutionary who was became known as the man in the bowl hat. So he's wearing a bowl hat, like a waistcoat, and um, some other accoutrements, and then he has an AK-47. And it's the first time that the West had seen one of these. Oh, wow. Um, actually they knew about them mm. sort of like the, the the intelligence services of the west knew about the ak-47 uh in the early 50s but they hadn't actually seen one until the uh, the revolution obviously we don't see one of those in in the film no not in the film there definitely weren't any more than perhaps one if any in britain at that time mm-hmm. and they definitely weren't in hands that were going to allow it to be in a film they weren't going to give them to a amateur dramatics group no <laughs> yeah but saying that it's a very impressive collection yeah. of, of small arms that we see in the film really good so we I, we try to track down how they came about these weapons and at the end of the film in the credits it, it credits a chap called uh roger colton yep who's listed simply as firearms or weapons and i can only assume that he had access to a collection of weapons mm. and some of them appear to be functional so so there's yeah, there's a mosin yeah, yeah. that definitely fires and i think there might have been an svt 40 that fires yeah there is there is some blank firing going on yeah pretty sure so very interesting but couldn't find any more about colton or no i i could came either. from but in the credits it does say home brigades depot oh the home, home counties, counties brigade, brigade yeah depot. that's in canterbury so yeah. i wondered maybe if that guy was an armorer or worked for the armory at the barracks possibly i mean i don't know whether the home counties brigade would have had so many soviet weapons no. i mean i just don't know where, where the heck are they getting them it's, I mean, it's if anyone either knows, a private collection or or, if, or the they splashed out and approached someone like baptiste the film armor uh company um yeah possibly for, for these weapons but yeah very mm. impressive uh on the weapon side and very impressive film really, really good. for 17 minutes of an amateur production and as a docudrama you know, Watkins is the sort of pioneer of the, the docudrama format. Mm, he is. And if you are a fan or a student of film, this movie is is one that you should sort of cite. You know, if you're going if you're going to cite anything about documentary, the inception of, of, of pseudo documentary filmmaking, Watkins is your man. You know, he he invents the genre, in my opinion. You can certainly see his his unique mm. style, sort of like develops through these two films. Yeah, most definitely. And. In the future, we're going to cover Culloden, which is 1964. We are, yeah. And that's one of his first films that wasn't an amateur film. It was, I think, I believe produced with some funding from the BBC. That's it. And that's that's a brilliant film. Yeah. Um, hard it going, but a brilliant film. Um, but then I think a lot of Watkins' work is hard going. It's not meant to be an easy watch. But there's brave, isn't it? It's a very, it takes a brave filmmaker to say, no, I'm not going to make something that will make money um, or is to make money. I'm not going to make something that will be easy on the eye. I'm going to make what I think is the truth. And I think, you know, if you're yes. a filmmaker that wants to do that, more kudos to you. Sod the critics, you know. Well, in, in this case, the critics loved it. I like, yeah. Uh, so wins a 10 best, doesn't it? The... It does. So both of these films were, were critically acclaimed within the, the amateur cinema circle in the UK. 
Yeah, they were loaded. And they? you can see why. Loaded, definitely. Yeah, mm. loaded. Mm. So between Unknown Soldier and and Forgotten Faces, there's a marked jump in sort of like uh, his vision and the way he wants to make these films. He goes from making this movie to working for the BBC and making Culloden. Yeah, he's recon- his skills recognised, basically. And, really much um, so, you know, given a, a feature-length slot for his next movie. Thank you for joining us, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode discussing some of Peter Watkins' early films. Do let us know through Twitter, at Fighting on Film what you thought of the film and also what films we should be watching next. We love hearing your suggestions. We've got some absolute crackers from you in the last few weeks. Big thank you to everyone who's followed us, downloaded, listened, shared. It really means a lot. So thanks for listening, guys. My name's Matthew Moss. And I'm Robin Maguire. Until next time. Bye-bye. Hello, Matt from April 2021 again. So it looks like we've passed those goals Robbie mentioned and he is actually going to have to watch The War Game, which is great news as it's a hell of a film. Sorry, mate. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.